Welcome to The Debris. This is where we talk about what was left behind by Hurricane Katrina and the floods that followed. I'm your host, Jesse Hardman. We're coming to you from WWNO, New Orleans Public Radio. This week, we head west on I-10. After Katrina, as many as 40,000 New Orleanians permanently relocated to Houston. That created a unique back and forth between the two cities, a trip many take on the Megabus. It's an affordable ride, as little as 40 bucks round trip. Producer Eve Abrams headed over to the corner of Elysian Fields in St. Claude recently. That's where the Megabus picks up and drops off people making the five-hour trip to and from Houston. Uh, I'm Roy Simon, 62 years old. My bus ain't got it yet, then I guess I'm going to Houston. I do go to Houston every night. I got grandkids, great-grandkids. Since the storm, people in New Orleans are everywhere. And a lot of them are doing better and not coming back, and that's good. Because you don't know it's better for you until you leave. Do you think that New Orleans, though, has changed because those people aren't here anymore? I know it has. I know it has. And, and I'm not going to say for the better, because I, 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 don't, I don't believe that. Because you're running people out of the native New Orleans from New Orleans. And they, and they left because New Orleans wasn't good enough for them. Katrina made them. They didn't know it until they went somewhere else and saw it. You know, you had to leave to say, hey, I, I'm doing better here. You know, I got, a, I got one cousin of mine, uh, he's up in uh, Colorado somewhere. He said, ain't nowhere in the world he'd come back to New Orleans. He ain't been back here since then. He ain't come back for funerals or nothing. I prefer them being where they at, doing better. Like this mega bus, or they come here, I go there. Hey, I love it. Close to that line, because we have to keep this sidewalk open for the pedestrians that are passing through. Thank you. Uh-huh. My name is Donald Gornis, and I'm 63. It's not worth it to come back. I have a 100% better life in Houston, and you get more for your money with the houses than here, and very nice subdivisions and everything, so I love it. I don't want to live back, but I like coming back. It's just a certain... just. New Orleans is New Orleans, baby, you know? Nearly a quarter of a million people evacuated to Houston from New Orleans during Katrina. The city experienced a 7% population increase. While Houston is a big place with lots of resources, a sudden influx of so many people was a shock to the system. The city of Houston and Harris County scrambled to bring services and temporary housing to Katrina evacuees. As temporary shelters like the Astrodome began to close down, about 150,000 people from New Orleans transitioned from evacuees, temporary, to Houstonians, permanent. They needed housing, schools, and jobs. Producer Kate Richardson is a Houston native. Ten years ago, she was a senior in high school, watching Katrina and the floods on cable TV with her parents. Next thing she knew... That storm was expanding to her own universe. Here's Kate. Houston, Texas, 2005. Local rapper Chameleonaire was on the radio. The Astros were on their way to the World Series for the first time ever. And I was a senior at Westfield High School in the northwest suburbs. 
It was a good year for a city with swagger. And when Katrina happened, Houston stepped up. Houston is a larger city tonight as the welcome mat remains out for Katrina's evacuation. That's a local news report touting the generosity of the Gulf Coast's bigger, richer metropolis. At the Astrodome tonight, right now, there are 15,000 people. 11,000 will be put up inside Reliant Center and 3,000 in Reliant Arena. And another 5,000 will find shelter at the George R. Brown Convention Center downtown. Although that generosity would become increasingly tempered by resentment. But all of this goodwill comes at a big price for Houston. All the conventions had to be canceled, costing the city a million dollars. Only 350 miles of interstate separate Houston and New Orleans. But culturally, the distance can feel immense. Stasia Davis was a public school teacher in New Orleans East before the flood. You know, this is like a whole new culture to us because at home you can walk down the street, you don't even have to know the people. They're going to say hello. They're going to find out, you know, something about you. Here, it's just like everybody does their own thing for them and, you know, go on. And it's, it's, it's hard to get used to. I've gotten used to it now, but it's, it's hard to get used to. When Katrina hit, she and her family loaded up five cars and made a grueling last-minute evacuation to Houston. Stasia and her kids bounced around to different houses those first few months. It was unsettling, and she was still grieving the life she had left behind in New Orleans. Uh, sometimes I get angry because I would had my own house, like I say, doing the best job I could as a teacher. I mean, and just really enjoying my life with my kids and then having to, like, start all over. That part I don't like. I don't like to talk about it. The family's new place was in a big, bright townhome development. There are little cul-de-sacs and small front porches, and in Stasia's corner of the complex, it feels a lot like a familiar scene in New Orleans. Kids playing in the street, a few people enjoying some shade on the front steps. Trayon. Can you spell it? The mailing address of this area is Houston. The maps call it Spring. Some people call it Knopfside. In reality, it's an unannexed swath of strip malls and subdivisions on the northwest end of Harris County. It's where I grew up in a house a quarter of a mile from where Stasia and her kids landed. Like a lot of angsty suburban honors students, I thought spring was lame and ugly, and I felt that the last year of high school was a boring layover on my way to college in New York. I started my senior year at Westfield in mid-August of 2005. I had good friends and school was easy for me, but I was pretty ambivalent in general. It was sort of fun. At the same time, Stasia's daughter, Chelsea Freeman, was starting her sophomore year at Sarah T. Reed High School in New Orleans East. For her, it was decidedly fun. Fun? Nothing but fun? <laughs> yeah, that's all I remember, like, fun. By January of 2006, Chelsea and about 200 other New Orleans students had enrolled at Westfield. By some accounts, it was the biggest group of Katrina evacuee students taken in by a public school in the whole city. Here's my high school friend, Alexis Phipps. So I just remember it being very, very crowded. I remember people being added to some of my classes, and us just not having space and resources to really support these people. Like, they were coming in knowing no one, nobody, no teachers. They have no idea what we're studying. They're just sort of dropped here. As I recall, there was never a school assembly or announcement about how Westfield was taking on a couple hundred Katrina evacuees. They just sort of appeared. Robbie Wallace, or Miss Wallace, I still can't help calling her that, 
was my art history teacher at Westfield. You know, they needed to bring the whole school in on this and talk to people about kindness and, and welcoming students who'd had a terrible time. There, there should have been more preparation for our students and the teachers, you know, because I realize now how much more could have been done. Chelsea says the transition was tough for the New Orleans kids. They were used to smaller schools, not huge campuses like Westfield. And Chelsea didn't exactly feel like the administration had her back. A couple of times we got locked out from, like, teachers and stuff. There would be, like, a fight between, like, Houston and New Orleans, so they would lock us out, the New Orleans people out, so... A teacher once mentioned in class that Westfield was built on a modified prison blueprint. I have no idea if that's true, but it wouldn't surprise me. Thousands of people in a nearly windowless complex. Everyone has ID cards. This dystopian sci-fi scene was a far cry from the laissez-faire environment of New Orleans schools that Chelsea was used to. When I would talk to my teacher, it was okay to say, like, baby or something, but I got to write up for that. Chelsea's brother, Noel Freeman, was also at Westfield for a brief time. He was a musician. In New Orleans, he had been looking forward to starting the marching band season at school. And when he went to Westfield, he was like, I don't like that. I don't know what kind of music they play, but it wasn't what he was used to, so he didn't. He joined, but he didn't stay. Joining us from Houston, Texas, please welcome the Westfield High School Marching Band. That's Westfield's marching band, competing in the 2003 Bands of America National Finals, which they won that year. We are here to perform a show about being in band. This is a totally different language than marching bands in New Orleans. Noel wanted to play something like this. A lot about Westfield must have felt really foreign to the New Orleans students. And on top of that, we made them feel foreign. We called them Katrina kids, as if the storm was their whole identity. Here's Chelsea. They used to ask weird questions, like, do we have a McDonald's? Like, weird, weird questions. Like, I'm just like, I don't know. They would ask, like, the guys who had dreads, like, how did they get them? Like, they grew them. I don't understand. (laughs) I don't understand. And then they will ask us to say, like, stuff like, say baby and stuff like, yeah, it's just weird. Of course, not everyone from New Orleans had a bad time at Westfield. Crystal Cooper and Sharika Crawford were in my cohort of honor students all through high school. Unlike me, they were also star athletes. Here's Sharika, then Crystal. We encountered a girl from New Orleans that came on our basketball team. You know, she fit in just like she was one of us, and she enjoyed her time there. But, you know, I, th- I think, you know, looking back, maybe, you know, her being put on a basketball team and having some some people accept her was a little bit different from those who, who weren't involved in student organizations. They felt like they were basically put in a situation where it was them against other, you know. To be clear, the Spring Independent School District did take measures to support students from New Orleans. Susan Rhodes was an academic counselor at Westfield at the time. She says the district called in social workers to help families and school employees. They began to give us information on working with children, you know, who had been in a crisis situation and most likely were traumatized. 
But the level of trauma experienced by some of the New Orleans students couldn't be diagnosed and cured with a seminar or pamphlet. And school administrators were also dealing with serious logistical issues. Susan Rhodes says most of the students had left New Orleans in a hurry, or all their stuff had been swept away by the flood. Nobody had report cards or school records. It took weeks and months to place kids, sometimes even on the elementary and middle school level, because we, you know, we would try to get records and we couldn't find, you know, couldn't find records, so we had to place them where we felt like they, you know, they were. For some people, the academic shakeup turned out to be an advantage, a fresh start access to public schools with more resources than the ones in New Orleans, not to mention a huge community college and public university system. Stasia Davis was missing the culture and familiarity of New Orleans, but she was starting to see the silver lining of life in Houston for her kids. The Spring ISD really, to me, seems like they're really trying to gear these children for the future. They're really trying to get them to where they You go to school, and then after you leave school, you're going to know something where you can do a job and get a good job. Stasia also liked the fact that there was support and funding for things at the high school, a little different than the more grassroots style of New Orleans. She remembers a play her niece Jessie was in. What was the name of the play? that We we all went, yeah, Little Shop of Horrors. The music department, I guess, did that. That was just awesome to me. I just loved it. You could tell it's money uh, that's been spent at Westfield for them to, it was an elaborate show to me. I was like, ooh, I like that. (laughs) But for other people, the transition was just painful and disruptive. Miss Wallace remembers two students who came to her drawing class from New Orleans that year. One liked the structure and higher standards he found at Westfield. He thrived. The other kid was acting out a lot. I realized that poor boy, he didn't need to be in school. He needed to be hugged. He he was just so traumatized. He was on the bridge with the people who had died there. And, you know, at the time, I'm just trying to keep up with my class. And I realize now that that boy needed so much more. From my vantage point as a self-absorbed 17-year-old, most of the New Orleans kids just seemed cooler than any of us suburbanites. They had cool hair, cool outfits, cool accents. That's about as deeply as I thought about the situation that year. But I did have one experience that stuck with me in a more serious way. I was editor of the school newspaper that year. Several Katrina kids were put on my staff. I asked one girl to write a brief paragraph about something at school, or maybe it was a photo caption. It was a very small task. She turned in something with no punctuation, riddled with spelling errors, barely legible. It was one of the first times I truly understood. Not everyone in this country gets the same education. As the school year progressed, a narrative began to emerge about Katrina evacuees in Houston. And that trickled down to Westfield. Here's Alexis. My parents were so concerned for my safety. They thought that there were brawls left and right, and it was like martial law. Like, how are you getting to and from class? Are you all right? And I was just thinking, nothing's happening to me. (laughs) Like, I'm literally unaffected by this, other than that there's more people in my class. 
In February of 2006, a big fight did break out at Westfield, the perfect opportunity for local media to squeeze some scandal out of the evacuation story. A local TV news station showed up to cover it. A headline in the Houston Chronicle reads, Brawl involving evacuees erupts at Westfield. Westfield that school year was a microcosm of the city, a big, diverse place with its own problems, struggling to accommodate a new population. A lot of people reacted poorly and blamed all the bad stuff on evacuees. The best among us gleaned something hopeful. There was a brief moment in time when I think I assimilated to everyone else's thoughts about New Orleans. It might have been after that riot, quote-unquote riot. That was kind of fleeting, I think, Every day going back to school and seeing that nothing was happening and everything was the same and people are just people and if people are going to fight, they're going to fight. It's not based on their skin color or where they're from that I just sort of let that go. Chelsea Freeman only stuck around Westfield for a few months. She dropped out for a while, then got her GED. Now she's finishing up a psychology degree at the University of Houston. She says it was a rough year. Just wanted to get away from Texas, period. It wasn't the school. It was just get away from Texas. I wanted to get away from Texas, too, though for different reasons. I moved out of state for college and eventually wound up in New Orleans. In January of this year, 2015, I was out late on a Monday night at one of New Orleans' most beloved karaoke spots, Cajuns. That's Cajuns with a K. I'd already performed my customary rendition of Friends in Low Places in the style of Garth Brooks, so I was just hanging back, enjoying the show. My Brazilian friend was on stage belting my way in the style of Sinatra. A guy came up and asked me to dance. I agreed, and as we did a silly, exaggerated slow dance, he asked me where I was from. Houston. Really? I went to high school there after Katrina. Where at? Spring. Spring High? Actually, Westfield. No way. I lost track of him after that night, but for a few minutes, it seemed like time was closing a loop. Exactly a decade later, we were sharing a space again. I haven't stayed in touch with most people I knew in high school, much less the New Orleans students who showed up that year. But ever since that night at Cajuns, I wonder how many of us are in the city, carrying around memories and impressions from that year at Westfield. I was just sitting down here thinking about an old friend I used to have. In the months after Katrina, cities hosting large numbers of evacuees from New Orleans expressed concerns about an increase in crime. According to a 2006 study by Rice University, 66% of the Houstonians surveyed thought there'd been a major increase in violent crime because of the evacuees. This supposed post-Katrina crime wave caught the attention of Sean Verano, a professor of criminal justice at Roger Williams University in Rhode Island. 
Verano was part of a study gauging the impact of the post-Katrina migration on crime in three host cities, Houston, San Antonio, and Phoenix. Producer Kate Richardson talked to Verano about what he learned from the study. Can you explain a little bit uh, about who was you know, most responsible for perpetuating the idea um, of this increase in crime? Like, how does that get started? Sure. I mean, there's, we, you know, let's, let's just be frank. I mean, crime and looting and violence garners a lot of attention by the media. And, and there's also a truism that most communities, as a general rule of thumb, um, fail to want to own their own crime problem. Almost always communities think that their crime problem stems from outsiders coming into their community who are victimizing their community. It's, there was a natural connection made between the evacuees and what appeared to be shifts in crime. So let's talk about uh, the study itself. Uh, What uh, what was your methodology? How did you collect your data? What data did you use? Sure. We we compared the impact of Katrina on local crime in three um, host communities. We ultimately secured police uh, incident data from those three host communities. And what we did was we secured the police data from the time period of, of January 2004, until September of 2006, and we looked at weekly counts of crime data in several categories of crime, and we, we looked at, we did a trend, a, a trend analysis of that data to see if the onset of Katrina itself appeared to have a significant impact on, on the trends that were already underway in those communities. And it's it's interesting the the relationship between your your data uh, and your analysis um, is is very uh, nuanced here because it seems that y- your data found one thing which was essentially at least in in the case of Houston an increase in crime but you caution against you know reading that as a result of the of the evacuees being there so can you uh, break down a little bit about what you found and then how sure. you uh, how you analyze that in the aftermath of Katrina part of what was starting to emerge was a sense that there was a growing crime wave in these communities. Not just that there was a spike in crime, but that it was fundamentally changing the scope of crime in these communities to create a sense of a highly exaggerated threat. And what we found was that in in Houston, as an example, the data show a significant increase in the number of murders and robberies in the aftermath of Katrina, but in many ways, no other impacts in other crime categories, most notably aggravated assaults. So it's interesting to say that while there was a very important and notable in- increase in homicides and robbery, um, that, that impact certainly did not uh, affect the larger picture of crime in those communities. What conclusions can we draw from your study, and what conclusions can we not draw? You know, what, what can't we say sure. from your study? So one of the important conclusions is that certainly crime, crime was impacted, it appears. But one of the things that we don't know is that even though there appears to have been an impact on Houston, we don't really know how. The, the, the assumption is that if there was an impact on crime, that we bought in a criminal element. I mean, this is the, this is the assumption. We bought in a criminal element who moved into Houston and victimized uh, those neighborhoods. And very rarely do we, do we consider that um, outsiders coming into our communities, we might actually be victimizing those people. And that part of the conversation is often left, left, left out. It's just as likely 
that this population was victims of crime as they might have been offenders of crime. Professor Sean Verano from Roger Williams University, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. And that's where we'll put down this piece of Katrina Debris. You can find our podcast every week through the end of August on iTunes or use the podcast app on your smartphone. Just search for WWNO and Katrina the Debris. Eve Tro is the executive producer of The Debris. Our producer is Kate Richardson. Digital director is Jason Saul. Paul Mawson is general manager of WWNO. Special thanks this week to Janet Wilson and Allie Roberts. Katrina, The Debris is produced right here in New Orleans. If you like it, want to hear more, consider giving support to New Orleans Public Radio. You can do that at WWNO.org. Support also comes from Dirty Coast Press. Learn more about their locally designed and produced products at DirtyCoast.com. I'm your host, Jesse Hardman. Until next time, be well, be good, be safe, and thanks. Thank you.